All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the third day of October 2017. Before I talk to you more about today's show, I uh, do want to remind you that I'm the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and that you can subscribe by going to miningstocks.com. MiningStocks.com, or you can call our office here in New York at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426, call during normal working hours, and someone will pick up the phone. You'll have a live body talking to you. What well, is an exciting opportunity right now in the junior gold sector, no doubt about it. I mean, Novo Resources, which is a sponsor of this show. We've had Dr. Henning on this show. He'll be scheduled to be on in three or four weeks from now once again. But Novo Resources has gone from something around $0.80. Cents. It traded up to $7 dollars today. It's just three or four months ago it was selling at those levels. Are they on to a major discovery? We're going to be talking to Brent Cook next week and John Kaiser, two people who have visited the project recently and get their opinions. But it is a very exciting time in the exploration space now with gold. Maybe gold isn't on fire right now, but the gold shares, those companies that are putting money in the ground, finding gold, finding other minerals are very exciting. Klondike Gold Corp is another one. Its price has more than doubled this year. We'll be talking to Peter Talman after the first break today. Uh, Peter Talman is the CEO of that company, and they have a very exciting project. I think also a world-class exploration project that is being uh, worked on in the Yukon, and Peter will talk to us, uh, give us an update on that. We'd like to encourage you to continue uh, thinking about or, or visiting Chen Lin's website. Chen Lin has done extremely well. He's uh, taken $5,400 uh, to two and a half million dollars over a ten-year period uh, in a uh, in an IRA account, uh, and Chen is sharing his uh, his bits of wisdom with subscribers. So, ChenPicks.com if you're interested in exploring a subscription with Chen Lin. I do want to thank each of you for listening to the show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. And I also want to invite you to continue sending along your questions and comments to questions4taylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. also want to thank our sponsors for making the show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are New Range Gold Corp., Klondike Gold Corp., uh, RN Resources, Novo Resources, and Genesis Metals Corp. I've titled today's show, The Dollar's Future and Yours. Are you ready for a brave new world? James Rickards, Michael Oliver is back today. Thank God for that. And Peter Talman, as I noted, will be on with us after the first commercial break. In 1971, Richard Nixon detached gold from the dollar and through diplomacy and military might created dollar hegemony. 
foreign wars and socialism could now be paid for via the dollar printing press and politicians wouldn't have to be at all honest and tell the American people that they would actually have to pay for wars and socialism. No, they could be, they could be done and carried out without charge. One of the repercussions of going off the gold standard then was that the United States could print pieces of money, pieces of paper to buy up the world's goods, which of course resulted in a chronic trade deficit for the United States and a loss of manufacturing jobs that previously provided income and upward mobility for the middle class. Self-serving politicians argued that endless trade deficits were immaterial because the United States' exceptionalism allowed America to do whatever it wanted. Furthermore, given the arrogance of our leaders, they suggested to the rest of the world that our endless and murderous wars and regime changes are actually good for the masses of people who occupy those countries with cultures that are different from our own. No, we were going to make them in our own image, they said. As Hillary Clinton said after she toppled Gaddafi, we want democracy, but we want our kind of democracy, meaning that we want to control you. That statement has many Americans scratching their heads these days. What is good these days about American democracy, some wonder? In any event, whenever foreign leaders refuse to accept dollars for commerce, as Saddam Hussein and Omar Gaddafi found out, the U.S. uses its military might and CIA for regime changes. Now, here is what I want to talk to James Rickards about. He'll be with us at half past the hour. James has explained that even the strongest adversaries in the United States, like China and Russia, cannot compete against U.S. weapons of mass destruction, so they are increasingly engaged in currency wars in an attempt to protect their own national sovereignty. And some of the questions I want to ask Jim uh, today is, uh, is the dollar in trouble as a result of currency wars being fought by Russia and China? If so, how will that impact your life and your investments? If gold is the most durable currency, how does Jim see the producers of that durable currency, namely the gold miners? Well, one company that is not yet mining gold, again, is Klondike Gold. And we just mentioned Peter Talman will be with us to talk about uh, his prospects there. Actually, a tremendous uh, structure that's been identified, gold-bearing structure that can be traced some 55 kilometers um, of course, it needs to be explored and drilled, and we don't know how much gold is there, but it is an exciting prospect. Uh, I think that um, that Klondike has the potential to, uh, if not equal, what Novo has done to at least rise very dramatically in its share price, of course, based on results. Now, many listeners have gone into a kind of withdrawal syndrome over the past two weeks because Michael Oliver has not been with us. In fact, one listener left a message on our voicemail, wondering if Michael might be missing in action. Maybe he made a terrible mistake in some of his calls, especially on gold, and he's afraid to come forth. Well, I can assure you that's not true because right now Michael Oliver is with us. So for those of you who are really suffering Oliver withdrawal syndromes, I would suggest that you might consider subscribing to his letter, and you can do that by going to OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com. Thanks for joining me, Michael. Great to be back, Jay. Great to have you. Now, you know, just to be clear to our listeners, um, you were absent from this show two weeks ago in large part. I think the only reason was because of logistics. I was in Europe traveling there, and it just wasn't possible to do the show live. And then last week you had some issues to take care of, personal issues. So let me assure the listeners out there that Michael isn't hiding from anything. If anything, he's out there. That's all. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how? come on. I mean, what kind of a wuss are you, Michael? You should have been yeah, on the I show. Like I mean, well, at the gym. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, anyway, I'm so glad you're back with us. Um, 
Michael, in your weekend report, you put out two very important missives, I think, that, you know, one on Sunday and one on Monday. The one on Sunday called for a bear market in U.S. T-bonds as well as European sovereign debts and the equity market, specifically the, the S&P 500 is what you track uh, most closely anyway. And then on Monday, you called for a continuation of a bull market in gold and the commodities and non-dollar currencies, meaning that the dollar in a bear market can you talk about uh, what you see for the debt markets, first of all, and the equity markets? Sure. Maybe link those two together first. Okay. Well, the debt markets are king. First off, they're huge. Okay. They dwarf the stock markets. And I'm talking about not uh, marginal debt or emerging market debt or you know, the stuff that's high risk. I'm talking the safe stuff, quote, unquote. U.S. Treasury bonds, notes, uh, German bonds, Japanese government bonds. Uh, these are the things that went to zero yield. Well, we didn't. Uh, our, our notes got down to 1% or so, and T-bonds got down to about 2% yield. But the Germans and the Japanese took their rates below zero. Uh, this is insanity. It's fantasy land. But they kept them there a long time. And whenever you distort something a long time, it creates fundamental distortions that are almost immeasurable because they were, the ramifications are dispersed throughout the economy. And they later come home to roost. Uh, so the longer the uh, fantasy land, the deeper, the, the, the worse the swing back is when it finally comes undone. So, but technically speaking, period, technically, uh, when we mm-hmm. look at annual momentum of the German bonds, Japanese government bonds, and the U.S. T-bonds, uh, I already see large evidence of a bear trend emerging. There's some residual evidence left, but I say, I say residual is very close to happening. It's decimals away. Uh, I suspect in the next few months I'll get those signals. If the debt markets start to break down, meaning yields start to rise, I think that will be reflective of the emergent commodity uprising that is underway. It's underway in such a way that it confuses people. It's slow, mm-hmm. it's arduous, it's overlapping, like the gold market's been. Mm-hmm. Put, get it put it in context. Gold had a big sell-off, admittedly, in late 2016, from the 1300s down to the low 1100s. But that made a higher low. It did not go back mm-hmm. to 1050. And then it turned up and rushed to within 20 bucks of last year's price high about a month ago. Mm-hmm. So it got close to the high. At the same time, annual momentum exceeded that high, by the way. So when I look mm-hmm. at gold in big strokes... I think it's bottomed. I think it's ready for a, for a, a stronger, more overt up move. And I think a lot of commodities are ready to join it. Think about this. Gold, uh, oil made a low at 26. It's around 50 right now. Copper made a low under $2. It's trading around 3 right now. The one missing piece are the food markets. And I think the grain markets, which started to, to turn up this summer and then fell back, but not to a, uh, a new low. They fell back holding a higher low. I think the grain markets are going to explode next year. The structures are there for momentum that justifies such a move. And when the food markets move, that's when people get upset. It doesn't upset your, uh, uh, your monthly expenditures when gold goes up, but it does when the price of all your foods go up, including cattle, mm-hmm. corn, mm-hmm. wheat, etc. That will get the attention of the central banks. That will help unnerve the bond markets as well, because then they're going to get their inflation as they... They define it, namely commodity inflation. We have rampant stock inflation, but they ignore right. that. Uh, right. But when they get commodity inflation across the board, and I think they're going to get it, and gold's already led the way, um, it will become more obvious, and the trend will become easier to follow. Right now, in the initial arm wrestling process of these tectonic shifts, which are underway, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you get a large move in the new direction, and then you get a counter-trend move. For instance, bonds had a counter-trend move to the upside from mm-hmm. the March low this year. They were 148, went up to 159. Now they're back down around 152. Uh, we issued a sell last year at 166 on T-bonds. Right now they're 152. We think they could go into the 120s, meaning get yield up to 4.25%. Wow. That's that's upsetting to the world. So Boy, uh, yes. my main focus right now would be if you're in these markets, don't be leveraged. Don't be too aggressive because this is a process at this point, a trend change process. Mm-hmm. And those almost invariably involved arm wrestling action where you get, get some gains and you give it back. Then you get some more gains and you give it back. And then finally you'll get a rush. But I don't think we're at that point of the rush. I think that comes next year. So I All right. Would, it, yeah. 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 Go ahead, Michael. Well, that, well, we'll, okay. we'll be waiting for that whoosh sound, and your uh, your momentum indicators provide that. It provided that for gold. Well, I don't know if you call it a whoosh when it goes down, but you had a timely call to get out of gold uh, back in 2013, I believe it was. 2012, uh, long, uh, in, in the two, 1600s. But you know, it took. That's another example. That took that top a year and a quarter to finally collapse. Uh-huh, and yet uh-huh. we declared a top in January of 2012, and it wasn't until April, May, June of 2013 that you really got your collapse. So, again, right. an example of an arduous process. And investors need to be ready for that. This is the early phase of major trend changes, and they don't usually happen rapidly. They're deceptive. Right, um, deceptive. And, and well, we want to we wanna know when the big ones are coming, Michael. We, I, I can tolerate the small moves. But, boy, I don't want to be in the gold shares if we're into a major gold bear market again. So we're looking to you for some help well, to, to guide us along. Time, Not I perfectly. I don't see anything major on gold that says yeah. be concerned. Okay. Um, if anything, uh, your bias is towards the upside. Uh, my I bias is it's just another nuisance, uh, 5 6 7% drop. But you gotta, where are you up on the year right now? Yeah. Up about $130 on the year yep. at the present yep. time. Uh, so, <laughs> think about that. Uh, yeah. So, uh, put those things in context. Uh, anyway, All right. uh, uh, 2018 is going to be a hell of a year. I'm put it that okay, way. it should should be a very interesting year. I, I hope uh, that we can have you back uh, constantly through 2015, Michael. You're such an encouragement to me. You've been very helpful to my listeners. They actually suffer withdrawal symptoms when you're not on with me. So, <laughs> thanks so much for alleviating alleviating their pain and mine. And we'll look to talk to you again next week, hopefully. Thank you, Jay. All right, folks. Well, we do have to go to break. But when we come back, Peter Talman will be with me to talk about Klondike Gold and their resources, uh, their, uh, their exploration project there in the Klondike, some 55-kilometer-long structure that they're looking at. Very exciting project. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Peter Talman. Foreign Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Foreign is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million.
New Range Gold Corps is a Canadian junior explorer focused on its recently acquired flagship Pamlico Gold Project. Located in Nevada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. Known as one of Nevada's highest grade gold districts, Pamlico was held by private interests for most of its history and remains largely unexplored. Drilling by New Range is already confirming the legendary grades of the district with intercepts up to 341 grams gold per ton. Well financed with no debt, New Range is unlocking shareholder value at Pamlico and trades under TSX symbol NRG. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Peter Talman. He is the president and CEO and the director of Klondike Gold Corp. He's had an extensive experience as an exploration geologist over 35 years, in fact, and he's worked in Canada, Chile, Mexico, and Australia. He's been on this show a number of times before, um, and um, as the president for Klondike Gold, Klondike is a favorite personal pick of my own. Also, it is a recommendation in my newsletter, and Klondike is also a sponsor to this radio show. Thanks for joining me again, Peter. Good afternoon, Jay. Good to have you with me. You know, um, I just should tell our listeners that your stock trades in Canada under the symbol KG. Uh, You can buy it down here in the States, as I have, under the symbol KD. KGF, 90 million shares, more or less outstanding, uh, around 42 cents Canadian, 34 cents U.S. recently. That's the price I've seen. Uh, Giving a market cap around U.S. $30 million, certainly not a very large market cap compared to some of the other stocks that I'm looking at, but that's good. That's good because I think your company has a huge amount of potential. So I'd like to explore that with you, Peter. You know, you're, you're looking for the hard rock source or feeder of some 20 million ounces of gold has been mined in the creeks and streams in the great Klondike Placer mining region. And your company uh, has a huge district scale claim, claims that are actually, I think, something like 55 square kilometers. Before you became involved with this project, you know, a a few years back, I remember people saying, well, you know, probably most, if not all, the gold that came from the mountains around has, has eroded away. But your exploration efforts have suggested that's certainly not the case. Uh, as much as possible in layman's terms, tell us why you think there's an awful lot of gold yet to be found and hopefully mined someday from your project in the Yukon. Well, I guess the, the work that we've done in the last three years, I'm comfortable in saying now that we have definitively discovered some of the sources of the Klondike alluvial placer gold. And I can directly account, Bonanza Creek was the original discovery and has produced 4 million ounces of gold over the last 120 years. And we're drilling on the ridge above Bonanza Creek and have discovered gold that has certainly been eroded off the hillside and is now sitting down in Bonanza Creek that is 
been mined or is still waiting to be mined. And the same that the Lone Star Zone that we've been testing outcrops in a in a little gulch called Victoria Gulch, uh, over about 200 meters of strike length. And Victoria Gulch is a tributary to Bonanza, has produced a million ounces in this little crack of a gulch over the last 120 years as well. And that gold is coming directly out of the bedrock in the creek, which is our Lone Star Zone. So uh, I'm, I'm, I've also figured out a model for how all of the gold in the Klondike has gotten into the local creeks and we're actively prospecting for the sources, the local sources of all that gold. So I, I'm hoping by the end of next year I'll be able to explain nearly all of the 20 million ounces of alluvial placer. Mm. All right. Well, I think your focus has mostly been towards the northern end of this huge, I think, sort of 55-kilometer-long structure. Actually, you huh? said it's 527 square kilometers. 527. what you think. Oh, yeah. yes, yes, 527 square kilometers. The, the distance from the northern, let's oh. say, the Lone Star, which is a target to the northwest, down to the Gold Run, which is in the southeast, uh, is 55 kilometers apart, right? Something That's like correct, that. yep. Huge, absolutely yep. huge. And um, your focus has been mostly on the Lone Star, but there's also the Quartz Creek and then the Gold Run areas. Those are three, two other major targets that you're looking at. Uh, but your focus has been largely this year on uh, on, on Lone Star, right? Yes. And, well, what about the other two? What are you, you're going to be doing something with those next year, the following year? How soon can you get to those? Well, we just... <laughs> Point of fact, I was just down to Gold Run two days ago. Um, really, the first time we've had an intensive look at the target area. We we think it's pretty much a long strike from Lone Star. We think it actually connects to Lone Star, so we went down and had a look, found visible gold in quartz veins in outcrop, um, and a, a widespread area of of quartz veining that looks like it carries gold. We still have yet. It's going to take six weeks or so to get assays from it, but also identified a thrust fault that undercuts the area and an extensional fault uh, that seems to be the associated with the gold-bearing quartz veins, which is exactly the same geology and same structural situation as what we find 55 kilometers to the north hmm. at Lone Star. That's incredible. So what we're looking at potentially here, do you see here then potentially one just gigantic gold system? Huh? It seems like that may be the, what you're looking at. I'm, I'm ridiculously excited about it because <laughs> I can see in the, the, the Canadian um, Geological Survey has flown a really coarse, um, it's not very precise magnetic survey, but in that survey it shows there's a mag break, which would be the, the it, it corresponds to the fault system at Lone Star, and it extends all the way down through and seemingly connects to, uh, to Gold Run. So if that's the case, then we have gold at the top in Lone Star, 55 kilometers away, we have gold at uh, Gold Run, uh, connected by the same fault, and right in the middle of it is our third target, Quartz Creek, which is a 20-square-kilometer golden soil anomaly. That's about all we know about it now, but mm -hmm. it's bang on the middle right where this mm. fault would come. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, it, it looks like it's, well, we have been looking for the mineralized 
event, what, what, what put all the alluvial gold into all the creeks only in the Klondike district? Um, and this would account for it. So, yeah, I think we're on to something. Well, it sure seems so. I mean, one of the disadvantages that you have, from my perspective as an investor, uh, it's both a disadvantage, but it's also ultimately a huge advantage, and that is the size of this target. I mean, you're, as you said before we went on the show, you, you, know, you're, you guys are still in the learning process in terms of the structural controls, where to, where to drill, and, and, and so... Uh, it, it takes time, and investors sometimes become a bit impatient. I mean, my subscribers will remember a company called Novo Resources that we stayed with for four or five years, and finally the big payday has come. I have little doubt that that's going to happen for uh, for your company as well, Peter. But what you know, talk to us a little bit about. Let's just look at the Lone Star. Then, if I'm correct, I believe there you have the. Some of the structural controls, or at least the, the let's say the plumbing that provided the liquids and the fluids that, that that deposited the gold, you've got the Bonanza Fault, which is the major one, I believe. But there's also uh, what is it called, the Nugget Fault and the El Dorado Fault, that that are three parallel faults that are on on the Lone Star. Give us some sense of how far apart are those, and how important are they in terms of your understanding at the present, in terms of the. Uh, the control, structural controls or the, the uh, gold uh, that's hosted there? Well, yeah, you're, you're right. We have three gold-bearing faults, Bonanza Fault, which is the one we've been focusing on, but also the ones that we started with in 2015 and 2016, Nugget Fault and El Dorado as well. Um, and they're about a kilometer and a half apart. Uh, each of them are gold mineralized. One of the things we just completed, so last Thursday, we had a news release uh, where we announced that on the Bonanza Fault, we've now tested in, uh, I don't know, wildcat holes, so long step outs. We've tested Bonanza for four kilometers in strike length. Mm. Not coincidentally, we've now tested Nugget for four kilometers in strike length, mm-hmm. and we're trying to do that to El Dorado, and I, I, we'll probably get to about two kilometers, and it'll be time to pack mm-hmm. it in. But mm-hmm. um, the the idea is, uh, there's there's three mineralized structures. We see them in Mag. They go at least seven kilometers huh. in length each, and that's to the limit of our Mag's coverage to the southwest, which is or sorry to the southeast, which is running towards Gold Run, um, and. Again, we're trying to learn structural controls. We know that there's the individual rock types express gold differently or take it up differently. And we're trying to figure that out, as you say, as quickly as possible. It's a concern for us as management, too. We have so many targets and so much ground now that we think is prospective and does demonstrably have gold in it. We just don't know how much. Um, so it's going to take a lot of drilling and a lot of figuring out. Well, you're doing some drilling now. You just announced uh, four drill holes, uh, and you've got a bunch more coming. I think we're going to have news flow from this year's work all the way up through, what, January or so. We'll be, we'll be learning, and you'll be learning as, uh, as a chief geologist uh, and understanding and gaining more understanding about this project. But... How long? What, what, how about the news flow? What, what can investors expect to learn from you over the next few months? Well, we'll be 
as you say, we'll be releasing individual drill holes probably into the end of January as it, as it looks right now. Um, that in part is, is the lab in eastern labs in eastern or sorry labs in western Canada have been really busy this year with a bunch of different discoveries, mm-hmm. um, and so they all of them are backed up. They're, I'm starting to see that clear, but that's okay. Um, and then because we added the second drill, we didn't add staff, and mm-hmm. so we have about 30 drill holes on deck right now that have been quick logged but still have to be logged and then sampled, and then you submit the assays. So. Uh, late January, I would guess we're still announcing raw results. In February, we're going to start announcing the compilation results of, hey, we thought about it, and here's what's going on. Um, and I, I can see, well, I would love to be able to discuss it now. I can see some stuff that's really positive, but we need more assays and data to say, yes, that's going on. Um, there's multiple I think there's multiple zones even within the individual faults. Hmm. Um, so I, I think there's lots of prospectivity. Anyway, by the end of February, early March, we'll announce for sure that we're going to have a $4 million budget, which doubles the work that we did this year. Um, we've already raised the money. We have it in, the, in what it's already allocated for uh, exploration, primarily drilling. Um, and that'll still leave us at the end of 2018 with four million bucks for 2019. So, you know, coming soon, news releases. Then our news releases on drill assays. Then a compilation, which I think that's what really everybody should look forward to: February and March, which is the potential. Here it is, put out on paper. You know, if it's 50, if we can connect. Uh, Lone Star to Gold Run. There's a 55-kilometer-long gold mineralized structure. Hmm. Um, Amazing. Uh, with, with a big target in the middle. Um, and then on Lone Star itself, or in the in the El Dorado Bonanza area, we have three faults that each have at least four kilometers of gold mineralization on them demonstrated in drill holes. Um, and here's, here's what we're going to go do. We're going to drag two drills in, drill at least... 15,000 meters of, of core next year and I, I can already see based on, the, on the, the few results that we have from this year's drilling where to go next year and I, I was telling the drillers this this morning um, you know the first 20 holes are going to be right beside gold intervals that have hit um, and, and that's going to be the program for the summer mm-hmm. so we'll, we'll expect some good results hopefully um, I, yeah Yes. <laughs> yes. Likely. I mean, it's, uh, well, you know, I mean, Peter, the, the thing is, uh, I think one of the things that I'd like my listeners to realize is that it's the size of this project is one of the reasons that maybe, you know, if you had a smaller target, you could sort of zero in on some really high-grade sections, perhaps, and drill into those, and the market would get all excited and everything. And I'm sure you're going to come up with some, you, you have come up with some pretty darn good drill holes in the past. Uh, nothing from these first four would I would say are you know the kind that are going to shock the market and get people really excited, but this is a big project that has I think ultimately the potential to be huge, and something that's going to attract I I expect will attract with success major mining companies and I imagine some of them are I imagine you're on the radar screen already of some of those majors. I, I know we're on the radar screen of two of them. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, part of part of this is, and, and uh, as you say, to back up a bit, the, the results weren't were okay, and I think the results will be all over the map in terms of assays. But we're directly outside of Dawson, uh, so the substation for power is 20 kilometers away along our road. Um, so it costs nothing to to electrify a, a plant if we wanted mm-hmm. to. Sure. Um, and the other aspect is something that. I haven't really released, but the stats from our assaying, so it's it's a qualitative thing, but it would appear that the gold is coarse, and we can recover it on a coarse screen, uh, like most of it, the majority of it. So it's oh. I think it's a simple process. The point is, it's not microscopic gold, which would require you know cyanide or something. Yeah, yeah. We could pen- potentially screen it, mm-hmm. and if that's the case. Not only do we have low, super low capital costs, uh, you know, prospectively dreaming a lot, sure. but I, I don't think the operating costs would be that much either. Yeah, well, it's, and, it's, and, it's, yeah, go ahead. So we don't need fantastically high grades here, mm-hmm. although we have them in places. Yeah. And that's another project for this winter. We're, lo- we're going back to Nugget, which was... You know, looking at those vein quartz vein array and realizing that there are other veins, and if we treat it more of it as a bulk tonnage, uh, there are bigger, broader widths on the Nugget Fault, and maybe we look at that differently too. Yeah. Well, there's it's lots of lots of reasons to be positive about this. Uh, I know I am. It's it's one of my largest, personally, one of my largest holdings. It's one of my favorite stocks in my newsletter. I'm really excited, Peter, and uh, I'm looking forward to some some more of those results coming out and, and keeping up with your story all the way through the beginning of next year. And then looking forward to next year's program, it should be very exciting. Anything else yeah. you'd like to leave with our listeners before we conclude our discussion today? Um, well, I, I'd like to invite you up here to the Klondike. Uh, I'd love to come. next summer. Come up and see it. Yeah, I think I'll wait till summer, Peter. I think I will. <laughs> but I'd like to do that. I really would. Yeah. And, and get my And get my friend Chen Lin to join us and some other people. Uh, some people at the Metals Investor Forum, perhaps some of the newsletter writers, some of the others. That have any of those my friends there at the Metals Investor Forum been up there? John Kaiser, Eric Coffin, any of those fellows? Uh, Brent Cook. Not recently. They yeah. they they've been up uh, in previous times and looked at the uh, some of the quartz fans and and not been impressed. I, I, and I, again, I think we're we're trying to change that opinion. Uh, from some of the work that's gone before, I think we have done. But. Well, I'm I'm sure you will. Uh, I'm quite mm-hmm. confident you, that the results are going to speak for themselves over time. Thank you so much for being with us, Peter, and uh, look forward to doing it again sometime in the not too distant future. Thank you. Well, folks, don't go away. We've got to go to commercial break, but when we come back, James Rickards will be with us. He's the former uh, advisor to the Pentagon on all matters financial. He's going to talk about currency wars and what that might mean for the gold price. If you're bullish on gold, it will not be bad news. So stick around. We'll be back with James Rickards. Novo Resources focuses on the exploration and development of gold projects. Its flagship asset is the Beaton's Creek Gold Project in Western Australia, where it is currently upgrading and expanding on its resources to produce an economic study in Q3 2017, followed by construction in Q1 2018. 
Novo enjoys a strong balance sheet and supportive shareholder support from the likes of Eric Sprott and Newmont Mining. It trades in Canada and the U.S. under the symbols NVO and NSRPF, respectively. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike gold rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corps. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again James Rickards. Uh, James is uh, the author of the best-selling Currency Wars, and that was published in 2011. He, however, has a new edition coming out uh, sometime uh, later this year, probably in December. Uh, he's also authored some other books that I have on my shelf here, The Death of Money, uh, is another one, and um, well, he's been involved in the financial markets uh, a good part of his life. He's also uh, been involved uh, as an analyst uh, for the various government agencies. He's been—he uh, is a lawyer. Um, he has a law degree in taxation, uh, and um, well, he's—he has a very well back, uh, well-rounded background in economics, finance. He's uh, theoretical as well as a real-world guy. So it's always good to have Jim with us. Thanks for being with me again, Jim. It's great to be with you, Jay. Thanks for inviting me. Always good to have you. Um, you know, I want to ask you, I guess before we get into some of the topics, I really want to ask you about uh, your Currency Wars book. Uh, that's going to come out in December, I think you told me. And, and what what's going to be different about the Currency Wars, this edition? I mean, will it be just an update of some things that's happened since 2011 in the Currency Wars? Well, it's a little more than an update. Uh, thanks, Jay. The original Currency Wars came out in 2011. The new edition, it will still be called Currency Wars. It's the same book, uh, basically, with a lot of new writing and a lot of new material. So what I did really is um, I just I updated it, but it includes a large uh, introduction, about 5,000 words, which is uh, you know the length of a full chapter that's completely new. And then as you go through the book, um, there's a lot of updates, new material. The uh, One of the things I said in Currency Wars when it came out in 2011 is that the world is not always in a currency war, but when we are, they can last for five or 10 or 15 or even 20 years. Um, and we should expect this one to last an amount of time similar to that. So I'm not surprised that here we are in 2017 going into 2018, and we're still in a currency where we're still talking about, you know, possibly President Trump possibly labeling China a currency manipulator and, you know, a lot of volatility in the euro dollar cross rate. So the currency wars are still going on. Again, comes as no surprise, exactly what I said in the book in 2011. But at the same time, the book 
kind of stops cold in 2011. Of course, that's when it was published. But at the time, as you know, dollar uh, the dollar was at an all-time low. The, mm-hmm. Using the Fed's broad index, the dollar was at an all-time low, and gold was at an all-time high. Uh, mm-hmm. Since then, gold uh, came down 50% before rallying back somewhat, and the dollar rallied very strongly. So those positions reversed. Uh, and now they may be reversing again with the dollar coming down a little bit and gold getting stronger. Um, but the point being... Um, the, you know, the book needed updating, particularly what, what I call for the age of Trump. So we're, the, ter- the title is still going to be Currency Wars, but I'm thinking about a sort of currency wars for the age of Trump. You know, what's new? And one of the, the, the really new material, uh, new pieces of material I developed is the sequence, this dynamic, beginning with currency wars, leading into trade wars, and then shooting wars. Now, the trade wars and the shooting wars we're not really on the horizon when I wrote Currency Wars in 2011, but today we are. And again, it's the same pattern we saw in the 1930s, where you had currency wars beginning in the 1920s, early 1930s, and then a global trade war in the early to mid-1930s. And then from the mid-1930s forward, you had a shooting war. So I see that same dynamic playing out where the currency wars are now turning into trade wars. We saw Trump uh, withdraw from TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, threatened to terminate NAFTA, threatened to terminate the Korean-U.S. trade agreement, um, imposing sanctions on China. Not all of those things have come to pass, but they've all been talked about. They're all on the radar screen. So we're kind of at the at the trade war uh, stage, and I think the shooting war, uh, particularly with regard to North Korea, is not far behind. So I, I work on that thesis as well. So the book, when it comes out, probably in early December, um, it'll be the same cover, same title, but it'll be a second edition, very fresh, uh, very contemporary. Mm-hmm. Jim, maybe you could just take a moment to explain to us what currency wars are, what are some of the battles within the currency wars, and why do we have them? Well, um, I'm glad you mentioned battles, uh, Jay, because that's uh, that confuses a lot of people. Uh, you know, in a real war, uh, it's not all fighting all the time. You have uh, intense fighting, punctuated, uh, and then there are periods of rest and regrouping, and then new battles break out. So, in you know World War II, you had the the uh, you know the D-Day invasion, the Battle of the Bulge, but but there were relatively quiet periods in between. Same thing in a currency war. We've been in a currency war since 2011, and you'll see something like uh, the, you know, the extremely uh, weak euro uh, in um, in late 2015, where the euro was down to, you know, kind of 105 and uh, almost 103, going to par, which it didn't. I, di- I didn't think it would, but um, a lot of people were expecting that, and people were accusing. Uh, they were saying, "Oh, there's a new currency war," and I kept making the point, "Well, it's not a new currency war. It's the same currency war." This is just a new battle. Now, the thing that causes currency wars, it arises from a situation of too much debt and not enough growth. So too much debt, not enough growth. Exactly the situation we find ourselves in today um, and that the world found itself in in 1919 after uh, World War I with the mm-hmm. Versailles Treaty when there was unpayable debt and, and sufficient growth. And that's when the currency war one uh, broke out. But normally when you have enough growth, Large countries like the United States don't really care about the exchange rate. If if we have sufficient growth and debt's under control and some country wants to devalue against the dollar, nobody cares. But when you don't have enough growth, uh, devaluation is a way to steal growth from your trading partners. You cheapen your currency. That helps your exports, creates export-related jobs, uh, makes imports more expensive so that – 
it helps your balance of trade uh, surplus, which helps your growth. And so it's just a way of stealing growth from your trading partners. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't work. The reason it doesn't work is because of retaliation. Somebody devalues against you. You turn around to value against them. They do it again. You do it again. It's a race to the bottom. Nobody's any further ahead. So we're in that situation today where there's too much debt, not enough growth. Uh, we've also seen these tit-for-tat devaluations where um, I've tracked uh, seven moves of 20% or more in the euro US dollar cross rate mm. uh, in both directions you know from the the euro went from a dollar 60 uh, you know down to a dollar dollar 20 then back up to a dollar 40 and then down to a dollar 5 and now it's back up to around a dollar 20 i mean this this is these are currency wars with a vengeance but it makes the point that you know the is the euro getting weaker stronger is the dollar getting weaker stronger well they both things are happening at once it's just like two kids on a seesaw one's up and the other's down mm-hmm. and it goes back and forth but nobody's any further ahead at the end of the day and then that's when people are tempted into trade wars they go well put some tariffs on but those don't work either and then a war breaks out that actually does work there's good evidence that actual warfare does um, destroy enough wealth that it helps uh, uh, wipes out debt because it wipes out debtors and helps growth on a going forward basis because you've done so much destruction. So death is uh, debt is destroyed and and therefore you can start over again. Is that the idea? Exactly. And yeah, I, I mean, it's a, you know, like a debt forgiveness uh, helps too. But I mean, we have to kill a bunch of people first, I guess, to make it yeah. happen. Well, if you wipe out a country, you wipe out the debt, and then again, you can start over. <laughs> Oh God, help us! Well, I, I, I suppose, I suppose that's where we're at, Jim. I mean, it seems like there's constant wars. Yeah, I mean, one of the ideas that I got from you before was one of the reasons that uh, you know countries like China and Russia and others uh, they are engaging in currency wars as well against the dollar, right? And and one of the ideas that I got from you was that they had to fight in that manner because they certainly couldn't. Uh, win in a conventional war. So what I'm hearing you saying is that we're moving towards some sort of a trade war, which then is, in in essence, it's a declaration of war, I guess, when you decide not to trade with other, you blockade or you keep other countries' goods from coming in. And that's kind of an aggressive act itself, isn't it? Yeah, I think, and I do think it can be regarded as an act of war. In fact, uh, General uh, uh, McMaster, H.R. McMaster, who's the National Security Advisor to President Trump, recently said that um, we no longer distinguish between kinetic weapons and financial weapons. They're all weapons. They're all mm-hmm. uh, elements of war. So whether it's cyber warfare, psychological operations, financial warfare, kinetic warfare, they're all just tools in the toolkit. So they don't even make a distinction. And it's uh, the sequence I described going from currency wars to trade wars to shooting wars. It is a powerful dynamic. You can trace it, but it's not all neat and tidy. Uh, there are some overlaps, and I think we're in a stage now where um, the currency wars and the trade wars are overlapping. We're seeing both, and I expect we'll be um, launching an attack on North Korea in the next six to eight months. Uh, but that won't make the currency wars go away. It just means that we'll have all three at once. Uh, but um, So it's a little bit messy, but that is the, uh, that is the dynamic, and it happens because uh, – the currency wars and trade wars don't really do any good. I mean, they, they people think they do. They try them. They're tempting. But uh, at the end of the day, you're no further ahead. Well, China and Russia, the BRICS, to a certain extent, have made it known that they're not happy about their position at the IMF. And, uh, and they've set out their own trade and banking infrastructure, the One Belt, One Road initiative that China is involved with. 
How seriously do you take that, and how seriously do you think the United States takes that, let's say, uh, from a geopolitical point of view? I take it seriously. I'm not sure the United States government does. I've had enough, uh, had quite a few conversations with officials, uh, current and former officials at the U.S. Treasury and the Federal Reserve and the military and intelligence officials. And it's hard to find anyone who thinks uh, there's any cause for concern that the dollar won't always be, uh, you know, king of the hill. I was in one war game meeting at the Pentagon. I was sitting next to uh, one seat away from a senior U.S. Treasury official, and I said something along the lines I'm saying in this interview, talking about, you know, the IMF and the SDR and the role of the dollar being diminished. And uh, this guy just kind of harumphed and said, you know, what are you talking about with these SDRs? Don't you know that the dollar has been the global reserve currency? It's the global reserve currency today and it always will be the leading reserve currency. And I just said, you know, I feel like I'm sitting in Whitehall in 1913 listening to, you know, John Bull talk about how the sterling will always be the global reserve currency. And, of course, mm-hmm. um, a few years later, it was the beginning of the end. And 30 years later, the sterling sterling was uh, you know, greatly devalued and completely displaced by the dollar. So I do detect some complacency on the part of uh, the U.S. government, unfortunately. But that doesn't change the reality on the ground. The fact is, uh, you know, Russia has tripled its uh, gold reserves in the last 10 years. China has tripled its gold reserves in the last 10 years. Um, you have to ask yourself, are they stupid or do they see something coming that most people don't? Well, I've been to Russia and China. I have a lot of friends in both places. I follow them closely. They're not stupid. They know what they're doing. And what it, what it means is that they see uh, a return to gold as a monetary asset and a diminution of the role of the dollar. The fact that America doesn't see it is unfortunate for us. Yeah, I'd like to ask you about that, uh, James, because, uh, you know, I've seen things in the press about um, China and Russia uh, preparing to trade uh, it, it can uh, more and more over time using dollars to a less extent after uh, Nixon took us off the gold standard in 1971. Kissinger arranged for the uh, creation of the petrodollar with our friends, uh, friends, quote unquote, in Saudi Arabia, uh, setting them up and defending and protecting them. And then we saw countries, uh, maybe maybe it was a coincidence or not, but countries uh, like Iraq or uh, Gaddafi's Libya deciding they wanted to go in a different direction and not accept dollars anymore. Uh, their regimes weren't long for the lasting. Um, I just wonder, though, if Russia and China seem to be, I mean, China's talking about buying its oil, and I'm presuming maybe from countries like Russia and Iran to start with, with their RMB backed by gold, if need be. So, in other words, they you know they pay they'll pay the Russians RMB. The Russians want to have gold and not RMB. They can they can have their gold. I guess uh, that that's my understanding. Is is this uh, something that you think is actually happening or will happen soon, Jim? And to what extent might it be a threat to the dollar's hegemony? Uh, it is happening. It's happening now, and I think it's a very serious threat. I think it's the beginning of the end of the of the petrodollar. Now, uh, the petrodollar, I'm sure a lot of listeners are familiar, was um, sort of invented or imposed, I think is a better word, by uh, Henry Kissinger and others uh, in 1974. It was uh, Henry Kissinger. William Simon was Secretary of the Treasury at the time. His deputy was a guy named uh, Jerry Parsky. Um, 
Helm, uh, so, sorry, Kissinger's deputy national security advisor was someone named Helmut Sonnenfeld. Um, Helmut was uh, also from Germany. He was he was known as Kissinger's Kissinger. Kissinger was a big brain, and Helmut Sonnenfeld was the was the big brain behind Kissinger. Uh, I actually met with um, Sonnenfeld and a couple others in the White House in 1974 um, at the time of the creation of the Petrodollar. And we were working on a plan to actually invade Saudi Arabia and uh, take over the oil fields established a security perimeter we weren't going to steal the oil we were just going to pump it and price it on our terms and then we could take the money and kind of hold it in trust for the saudi people but it was more a way of controlling the supply and the price rather than actually stealing it uh fortunately that plan never went forward but it served a purpose it was a threat it was a carrot and stick approach or a uh um you know, kind of good cop, bad cop routine. So what Kissinger and Parsky did, uh, and Bill Simon, they said to the Saudis, look, we want you to price oil in dollars. We want you to accept dollars for oil. Implicitly, if you don't, there's this other group over here. They're ready to invade and you know, take over your oil fields. Mm-hmm. So like I say, it was a threat, but the Saudis uh, agreed to the petrodollar deal. And the way it worked was that uh, they sold us oil. We paid them dollars. They then took the dollars and put it into the U.S. banks, uh, Citibank and the Chase Bank at the time. Um, I actually worked for Citibank for 10 years, not long after the um, uh, incident I described. Uh, I worked there from the late 70s to the to the mid 80s um but then Citibank would take the money and lend it to places like chile and mexico and Mm -hmm. argentina and brazil and then they could have bought they could buy machinery and equipment from the united states and we would Mm -hmm. earn the dollars back and then use those to buy the oil Mm -hmm. so the it was just a way of getting the lubricating the system getting the money america around up and running again after the uh severe recession market collapse and oil embargo of 1974 um and it worked uh worked brilliantly and besides which once you price oil in dollars Everybody needs oil. That means everybody needs dollars because you need the dollars to buy the oil. So that put a floor under the dollar and made it uh, the global reserve currency it, it is today. It already was, but that really strengthened the dollar and really solidified its position after the end of uh, the Bretton Woods gold standard. So that worked fine for 40 years. And now here we are, and we're seeing uh, that undone. And the particular initiative you mentioned, so China is saying, China is saying, look, we're the world's largest oil importer. So they're saying to Russia and Saudi Arabia and others, we would like you to sell us oil in yuan, the same way the United States said we'd like you to sell us oil in dollars. But uh, so if you're Russia and you're an oil exporter, you're like, well, okay, but what am I going to do with the yuan? I mean, there's not a there's yeah. not a big yuan market. There's not, mm-hmm. not a lot of things I can invest in, et cetera. Um, and China says, no problem. You can take the yuan that you get from us and sell it spot for gold on the Shanghai Gold Exchange. Now you got gold. And if you said, well, yeah, but gold's volatile, you know, in euros and yen and dollars, it's up and down. It's like, okay, no problem. You can hedge the gold on the Shanghai Futures Exchange. So you, you need to take three contracts. You need the oil yuan contract. You need the uh, yuan gold contract on the Shanghai Gold Exchange and then the gold futures contract on the Shanghai Futures Exchange. But if you put it all together, stitch it together with straight-through processing, in effect, you've, uh, the, the seller can get hard currency if they want or gold if they want. But what China accomplishes is you establish a yuan benchmark price for oil and you get people used to the idea of uh, accepting you want for oil, that's the beginning of the end of the petrodollar. It doesn't happen overnight. I'm not saying the dollar mm-hmm. you know, goes to zero overnight. What I'm saying is that it's, um, it's a slow, steady drip, drip, drip erosion. And so combine what, what we just said 
with the acquisition of gold by Russia and China, and then throw um, you know distributed ledger technology and cryptocurrencies into the mix, and you've got mm-hmm. a kind of pretty toxic formula for the dollar. Yeah, it's very interesting. Why well, I can't help but wonder how the United States would take it if Saudi Arabia started selling their their oil to uh, to China for renminbi or gold. Well, you know, China's their biggest customer. The United, the, the yeah. Saudi does not sell most of their oil to the U.S. We actually, uh-huh. actually, the U.S. is a competitor. We're 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 an oil exporter now because yes. of fracking and yeah. uh, some other developments. So uh, uh, I think Saudi has to sort of be nice to their customers. Interesting. It's really fascinating stuff, James. Um, I just have to just have to wonder if, you know, let's say the dollars. So you don't think what is your outlook on the dollar right now? Just with a couple of minutes left, what do you think about the dollar, and how soon might we see? I mean, you know, we're looking at a weaker dollar now. Is this just a, a blip, or are we? Do you think we might be in for some more weakness in the dollar? And if so, how soon do you think this dollar hegemony will end? Well, you know, the the currency wars are alive and well, and, and you're, you're right, over most of 2016, the dollar was getting weaker, but very recently, meaning from the middle of September until early October, the dollar is getting a lot stronger. That's because the market has taken the view that the Fed's going to raise interest rates in December. The Fed's on a, in a, a tightening mode, and uh, they started this uh, QT, quantitative tightening, balance sheet normalization. So all this is making the dollar a lot stronger, and the euro is down from 120 to 117. I expect that will reverse pretty violently, and suddenly as we get closer to December and it becomes apparent that the Fed cannot raise interest rates, which is mm-hmm. my forecast, based on disinflation, which is kind of the Fed's worst nightmare. So yeah. I think the market, I hate to say the market's right or wrong. The market is what it is, and nobody wants to stand in front of a moving train. Right. But my expectation is the market will get a wake-up call. We'll see the Fed's not going to raise rates. That's a form of ease. The dollar will weaken. Uh, but this this is kind of the normal day-to-day back and forth of the currency wars. But the bigger picture you're talking about, Jay, it's not that the dollar will go away. Yeah. We'll still have dollars, but it'll be like Mexican pesos. It'll be a local currency you use um, while you're in the United States, but it won't be the global benchmark. That may happen faster than we think. Yeah. Not overnight. It's not like we go to bed and wake up and the dollar's gone, but uh, with these developments in the SDR and gold and um, and the distributed ledger technology, it could happen faster than we think. All right, Jim, uh, 30 seconds. How can people buy your book when it comes out in December? Where can they buy it? Thank you. The best place is Amazon. It's available in your local bookstores. It'll it'll have a badge on it. So make sure if you're interested in the new one, if you already have the existing one, uh, make sure you're getting the new uh, edition. But there'll be something uh, to indicate that. Uh, but Amazon's a good place to uh, to do it. Oh, excellent. Well, thank you for being with us again, James. Always a pleasure. I uh, hope to have you back again sometime in the near future. Well, folks, uh, that is all the time we have for this week. Next week, my guest will be Brent Cook and John Kaiser to talk about the hottest stock on the planet. That's a company that is also a sponsor of this show. I'm talking about Dr. Quinton's Novo Resources, which has risen about tenfold over the past few months. It should be an exciting show. I hope you'll join me then. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.